good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll talk to the writer and director of the award-winning indie film I Love My Dad. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Oak Park Festival Theater's current outdoor offering. We'll also discuss a recent op-ed in the state of Chicago theater. Later in the show, I'll catch up with the local artist Ray Borchers to talk about her new solo exhibit, and I'll take a closer look at a new documentary that highlights acclaimed author Barry Gifford's connection to Chicago. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. How far would you go to stay connected to a family member who cut you off? Would you create a fake social media account? and then attempt to connect with said family member posing as a potential romantic partner in order to have some type of interaction? That might be a bridge too far for some of you, but the situation isn't totally implausible. The crazy scenario is the premise for the new film, I Love My Dad. The movie won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Narrative Feature at South by Southwest this year. In the film, Franklin, a 20-something who has just completed a stay at a treatment facility after attempting to commit suicide, cuts off all contact with his dad, including blocking him on social media. Devastated and desperate to reconnect, the father, Chuck, is struck by something a co-worker says about stalking an ex-girlfriend by creating a fake social media account to keep tabs on her. So Chuck creates a fake Facebook account using the likeness of a random waitress that he interacted with once and then friends his son as this fake person. Soon their online communication blooms into what Franklin believes is a romantic relationship and cringe-inducing comedy ensues. The film was written, directed, and stars James Morosini. He plays the Franklin character. Celebrated comedian Patton Oswalt plays his dad Chuck. The cast also includes several Chicago connections, including Crane High School alum Lil Rel Howery, actor Amy Landecker, her dad is radio personality John Records Landecker, and social media sensation Claudia Saluski. She grew up in Park Ridge. Saluski really plays two characters. She plays the waitress and then the imagined version of who Franklin believes he's communicating with online. We'll get into more of that later. I recently caught up with Morissini to talk about making his first feature-length film. We started our conversation by getting into the inspiration for I Love My Dad. Turns out it was pretty personal. About a decade ago, his dad catfished him in an attempt to reconnect. That's right. Yeah, when I was about 20, my dad and I got in a big fight, and I decided to just cut him out of my life, block him on Facebook. Just, just you know, it was an overreaction at the time, but... I was going through some stuff and he was really worried about me and I wouldn't talk with him about any of it. And I got home one day and this really pretty girl had sent me a friend request online and I was very excited. She had all these amazing pictures, had all the same interests as me. And, uh, and then it turned out to be my dad and, uh, and this story was born. So I think I, I read something that that incident with your dad took place when you were in your early twenties. So then just over the, the past several years, is it something you've been thinking about? Was the idea to turn that into a script for a, a feature-length film something that was clear to you right away? It, it wasn't until probably, I, I was I was probably like 19 or 20 at the time, but it, it was, it, it took, you know, it was probably a decade until I was like, oh, that would be a really good idea to make a movie uh, of this because it, it kind of combines weirdness and heart in a way that really interests me. So you play a version of yourself in the film. The Franklin character isn't uh, you exactly. And then Patton Oswalt plays the, the father, Chuck. Just curious, uh, when you were writing this, how much of the Chuck character is based on your real dad? I think I took, you know, there are some similarities, but um, my dad in real life was a lot more present than Chuck is for Franklin. And, you know, I, I but but the relationship is very similar in a, a lot of ways. A, an earlier version of our relationship, I think he and I are on really good terms now. But I, I really wanted to 
explore that father-son relationship and and kind of integrate the emotional truth of, of my experience with my dad throughout. The film does a, a great job exploring the realities of modern day communication, especially as it relates to how romantic partnerships sometimes form these days. Obviously, there's a weird twist uh, in your film because Franklin believes he's talking with a woman named Becca, but he's actually texting with his dad. And that's where the cringe-inducing comedy comes in. Was that a challenge when you were writing the script, making sure it was funny, but trying to make sure you don't lose the audience because it's too gross or cringy? I wanted to tell a story that was both really sincere and then also kind of sarcastic at the same time. And I felt like it would be cringier and funnier if we were also really emotionally invested in the characters and could kind of see ourselves in certain characters. And, and we were kind of forced to ask ourselves, what would we do in this situation? And there really weren't any great answers. I, I think that's where a lot of the discomfort comedy comes in, in this film. I would imagine then a key is just setting the right tone. Yeah, I, I wanted to make it feel grounded uh, the whole time, even when it gets really crazy and heightened. I, I wanted to feel I wanted it to still feel realistic throughout. So we talked about the the online messaging, and I also want to highlight that you did something really interesting in how you depicted it on screen because you know we've seen TV shows and movies now incorporate you know digital messaging, and sometimes you'll see texts appear on screen, or you'll get to see the character holding their phone, and you can see what they're typing. Uh, but you did something interesting rather than than do something like that. When two characters were communicating via text or messaging, they actually shared the the same physical space as if they were having a, a conversation together. Did you have that idea from the very beginning, or did that come about gradually as you worked on the script? Yeah, you know that was really key for me in being able to tell this story. I knew I didn't want audiences to just be, you know, we're all we're all on our phones for most of our days. I know I am, and so I when you go to see a movie, that's kind of an opportunity to step away from your phone. So I didn't want to subject audiences to two hours of more phone time. And when you're talking to someone online or texting them or whatever, it often kind of feels like they're right there with you. And so I just figured, well, what if they are, what if they are literally materializing in, in spaces and, and that would allow us uh, to to capture those conversations more cinematically than just, you know, back and forth on a phone. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking to James Morosini, the writer, director, and co-star of the new comedy, I Love My Dad. Let's listen to a, a clip from the film. In this scene, Chuck, played by Patton Oswalt, convinces his girlfriend, played by Rachel Dratch, to pose as the fictional... Becca on the phone in order to keep his ruse with his son going. Is this Franklin? Is is this a good time? Yeah, I was just. Yeah, sorry. I, I was I was literally just in the middle. Of, uh, yeah, what's going on? Uh, how's your day going? Pretty good. How's it going with you? What are you wearing? Just sweatpants and a uh, Red Sox shirt. Uh, what if, What about you? Just a dress. Oh, awesome. No panties. Sorry? Just got out of the shower. Oh. Hopefully you did your laundry so that there are clean towels. Mm. Your voice is sexy. I'm actually not good on the phone, uh, to be totally honest. Me neither. Do you want to just meet in person? Sure, I'd love to. Sounds great. See you soon. That was Rachel Dratch and James Morosini in a scene from I Love My Dad. And you could hear Patton Oswalt making exasperated grunting noises in the background. Those three are part of a tremendous cast that helped bring Morosini's script to life. I've been a fan of Patton's for as long as I can remember, and he I knew he had the right comedic sensibility and, and just as a big heart. And, and so I knew he'd be perfect for Chuck. And then uh, Claudia Saluski auditioned for the film and just blew me away. She has this kind of, she's just magnetic and, and has this incredible ability to make everything she does on screen feel very real and, 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 and uh, 
just really captured my attention directorially. Um, and then the other actors, you know, Lil Rel and Rachel, I, I liked the idea of having these comedic voices calling Chuck out throughout the movie and saying what we as an audience wish we could say to Chuck. And then also giving Chuck the opportunity to defend himself and defend what he's doing against basically the audience. Um, And then, you know, we also had the great Amy Landecker who is from uh, Chicago and, and just, I've, I've been a fan of her acting for forever. And Rachel Dratch is, you know, one of my favorite people from Saturday night live and just, is so smart and funny. And uh, I was really thrilled that she was right for this part. Uh, Ricky Velez also has a part at the end of the movie. He's an amazing stand-up comic. I know. I love my dad. Uh, premiered at South by Southwest earlier this year, and it won the Grand Jury Award for Best Narrative. That had to feel gratifying to get that kind of recognition the first time it screens. Really exciting, man. When you tell a story like this, you're always you're always wondering like, are people going to get this is it's, it's so weird. and so personal, uh, that you're not totally sure. Uh, and so to, to have an audience respond in the way they did at South by and, and elsewhere, you, you know, we had one of our, one of my favorite screenings at the music box in Chicago at the Chicago critics international film festival. And, um, you know, it, it's it's so fun to see this movie in a big theater where everyone is just screaming with discomfort and, and experiencing <laughs> the movie together. It, it's really unlike anything I've experienced. So the first time you watched it in a, a theater with other people, were you holding your breath to see how they would react in, in some of the parts you knew that were coming up? Yeah, I mean, I there there's a there are a few moments in the movie where the best thing that's happening to one character is the worst thing that's happening. <laughs> So it, it takes people really high and really low uh, very quickly. And, and those moments are, are just so fun to watch with the crowd. And now obviously it's going to get this wider release and, and more people are going to see it and engage with it as the, the person who kind of birthed this whole project. Do you have hopes for what audiences take away? I hope people just have a great time watching the movie and, and I hope they see it theatrically just because I, I really do think the experience of watching it with other people is a really special one and, and uh, it, it is I, frankly I think probably more enjoyable in a lot of ways and then other than that you know I think um, the movie's ultimately about kind of recognizing that we're all flawed we're all doing the best we can and I hope that in in some small measure people are able to like to, to recognize that and, uh, you know, maybe forgive someone in their life that they've been holding a grudge against. So what did your dad think of the final version of the film? So my dad and I saw it, uh, he saw it for the first time at South by with an audience of 600 people, which was a pretty spectacular moment. Um, I was really nervous. I, I was hoping that he'd dig it. And, and he ultimately really did and, and was very moved by the movie. I think it made him extremely uncomfortable, which was, uh, which was interesting, but he has a similar sense of humor. And so was able to, he, he kind of tipped his hat to me. And this movie is a, in a weird way, me catfishing him back in a, in a different way. I kind of think about it in that sense. Yeah. I really, I love the film, James. I really appreciate you taking time to, to talk with me. Best of luck with everything. Oh, thank you so much, man. It was great to meet you. That was James Morosini, the writer, director, and co-star of the new comedy, I Love My Dad. It's currently playing at several local theaters. And if you don't make it out to the theater, it'll be available to rent on demand on several video platforms starting Friday, August 12th. And a quick reminder, if you enjoy listening to the art section every Sunday here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org.
And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Welcome to the dog days of August. Right, right. Is that what they call August, the dog days of summer or something like that? We're in that small window here in the Chicago area where we can actually count on warmer temperatures. So it's the perfect time to check out some outdoor theater. The Oak Park Festival Theater has been presenting outdoor productions for 47 years. The company's current production of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale is running through August 20th. And Carrie, I know there's some debate among fans and aficionados about The Winter's Tale. Is this a a comedy or a tragedy? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's famously classified with Shakespeare's problem plays, which... I think basically means that it's neither clearly a comedy nor a tragedy. I don't know if they had the phrase tragic comedy, let alone dramedy, back in Shakespeare's <laughs> time. But that's pretty much what it is. Um, and it cleaves pretty neatly between the two. The first part is definitely more tragic. There are echoes of Othello. We meet uh, the jealous King Leontes of Sicily, who is convinced that his Queen Hermione has been cheating on him with their longtime friend, the visiting king from Bohemia, uh, Polixenes. And indeed, that Hermione's child that she is carrying is Polixenes baby. Uh, not even the judgment of the Oracle of Delphos that comes in and uh, you know proclaims Hermione innocent as Leontes, who has imprisoned his wife by this point and had sent his friend flying for his life back to his his native land, is a tyrant. Uh, that that judgment of the Oracle does not stay Leontes' hand. He orders um, the child who has been born by that point, the infant daughter Perdita. Or is it Perdita? I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. But she is abandoned by a courtier in the woods of Bohemia. They've crossed the ocean. Uh, the geography, as always, is a little bit, you know, off, but we'll go with it. Um, that's the first half. So we have, and, um, and by the way, their older child also died. So you have a queen who is apparently dead. Their son is dead. A child abandoned in the woods. And somebody gets eaten by a bear. Intermission. <laughs> the second act is a very pastoral comedy with shepherds and in uh, the staging by Kevin Thighs, at least, a very sort of hippie kind of aesthetic, which one might expect for a place called Bohemia. And there's young love and there's, uh, there's you know, trickster clowns. And it all sort of revol- you know, resolves itself with hints of sadness still hanging in the air. But it's essentially, I think, a play that continues to be to be done because it does have some really lovely things to say about hope about forgiveness, about redemption, and yet there is still, you know, this little shadow at the end as well. Um, at least that's kind of how I took it. Jonathan, what were your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, it has this totally bifurcated plot, yeah. as you said. <laughs> that, uh, one half tragedy, and then the second half is comedy and romance. After, uh, after King Leontes realizes how wrong he was, he plunges, he's consumed with guilt, and he plunges uh, Sicily into perpetual mourning. And then 16 years pass at what is usually the intermission. Of course, Shakespeare didn't write plays with an intermission. Right. They went straight through, but most people take an intermission. And when you come back, it's 16 years later, and you've jumped from Sicilia, which is plunged into perpetual mourning, to Bohemia, which is sun-dappled and joyfully pastoral, the kingdom ruled by Polixenes. And there, Polixenes' son falls in love with a young shepherdess, which, of course, is a definite social no-no for a prince, (laughs) the son of the king, until she turns out to have royal blood herself, which returns everyone to Sicily, for a happy ending and a resurrection, literally a resurrection, and people who know them. Anyway, this <laughs> bifurcation makes this, uh, you know, the huge change in the temper of the play, makes it one of Shakespeare's uh, uh, still, even now, least produced plays. This has been for uh, uh, Oak Park Festival Theater. It's been adapted and directed by Kevin Thies, who is a reliable veteran hand at Oak Park Festival. And he skillfully eliminated several minor characters and plot complications to whittle down the total running time to about two and a quarter hours, including intermission. So the pace is brisk, the storylines are clear, the physical production is solid, and the acting is good. Uh, the comedy scenes in Act Two are especially well done and 
genuinely funny, thanks mm-hmm. to the comedy chops of actors Dylan Baxter and Brian Rooney. And I also must cite Mark Lancaster in the central role of Leontes, the Jealous King, and Rebecca Swizzlow as his falsely accused queen, Hermione, uh, the one who is resurrected at the end, I might add. Their work has plenty of heart, as Shakespeare really pushes them very swiftly through these monumental swings in mood and temper. Yeah. I also want to call out Barbara Zahara, who is the artistic director of Oak Park Festival. She plays Paulina, who's a character that I've always loved. I first, The first time I saw this play was over 30 years ago at the Goodman, and Linda Eamon, who old hands may remember from those days, played this role. Paulina is the outspoken lady-in-waiting to Hermione. She is sort of the moral conscience to the king, and I think there's particularly now, perhaps, after recent history, to see someone who is bravely speaking truth to tyrannical power is really heartening. Um, Paulina is, you know, she's uh, she's she's stout-hearted, she's honest, she won't let anyone, you know, uh, bend, bend her her will to things that she knows to be wrong. Uh, and I thought Zahora did a wonderful job with that. Indeed, uh, indeed she did. Uh, she's not only the artistic director, but has frequently been a director and an actor on stage. And, and certainly Leontes uh, is familiar to, uh, I think, everyone uh, today in the United States who follows politics, because here you have a leader who's convinced that a lie is the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's pathological about uh uh, the lie that he puts forward, and they eat upset about that. It's yeah. his, it's his doomed young son, his prince and heir, who says that a sad tale is best for winter. And because the first half of this play is sad and dark, that's where the play gets its title, The Winter's Tale. You, you know, uh, this is not. I, I really liked this production. I thought it was very, very solid. It's not the very best production of The Winter's Tale I've ever seen. But that's really because of the challenges of staging outdoors in a public park rather than in a purpose-built theater or amphitheater outdoors. But it's more than good enough, this production. And I did feel a tender-hearted response at the end, as one must if the play has worked its magic. And I think it does. It may be the winter's tale, but, you know, it's just fine for a summer's night. (laughs) (laughs) And I also just wanted to quickly mention that I thought one of the things that uh, you mentioned, some of the ways that Kevin Thai sort of trimmed things down. At the very top of the the production, there's this little dumb show that illustrates the relationships, you know, the encounters between Leontes and Hermione, Hermione and Polixenes, Polixenes and Leontes. And it sort of, I think, underscores a key point that Thais is getting at, that Leontes is using what he thinks is the evidence of his eyes, but he's building this narrative out of fleeting impressions and not facts, and he will not waver from his beliefs, no matter how many people tell him, you got it all wrong, your majesty. Uh, And I think that was just a beautifully uh, um, elegant way of getting us into the story, so... All right. Oak Park Festival Theaters, The Winter's Tale continues outside through August 20th. And uh, Oak Park Festival Theater is just uh, one of the outdoor options in the area. Right, Jonathan? That, that is true. There are uh, a number of outdoor options still continuing through the summer. Uh, uh, several of them are itinerant. They perform in Chicago's public parks and they are in a different park uh, each week. So the way to uh, find out where they are is to go to the website of the individual theater and find out. A Midsummer Flight, which is an itinerant outdoor Shakespeare company, and they are doing this summer a Midsummer Night's Dream. That's coincidental to the, the name of the company, A Midsummer Flight. And if you look them up, you can find out which public parks they are in. And uh, a third, Shakespeare. This is a new company, now in its second year. It is the Forest Park Theater Company, just uh, you know, it's on the southern border of Oak Park and not far from the Oak Park Festival. And the Forest Park Theater Company is doing free performances uh, of an adaptation of Shakespeare's Cymbeline. They're calling it Enogen, a heroine's journey, and it focuses on the young heroine of the play. And those performances, those are not itinerant. They are in the Grove at Altenheim in Forest Park. And they run uh, 
six performances uh, uh, this weekend. Uh, actually, uh, the first weekend is uh, the last performances today at 5 p.m. And then next weekend, the 12th, 13th, and 14th, uh, 5 p.m. performances of Inogen, a heroine's journey at the Forest Park Theater Company. And the final touring unit, unit something completely different, Torchlight Music Theater has a touring unit in the Chicago Public Parks each weekend doing a free uh, hour-long or hour-plus concert of Broadway songs from, uh, you know, a, a wide uh, number of years of the history of Broadway theater. And that can be quite entertaining. Porchlight Music Theater, you can look them up and see where their touring unit is going. So there's plenty to do outdoors. I have an outdoor show as well. It's a little bit different. Um, it's a show by Theater Y, which is located in North Lawndale. It's a show called Laughing Song, and it's uh, a piece that combines the story, uh, a Laughing Song, A Walking Dream is the full title. It's a four-hour show, but don't let that dissuade you, particularly if, uh, like me, you're not as terribly familiar with the West Side neighborhood of North Lawndale. Uh, the song, the, the, A Laughing Song, is the title comes from George W. Johnson, who was one of the first, actually the first, I believe, black recording artists. In the United States, uh, his big hit was called Laughing Songs. So it's about laughter. It's about the history of North Lawndale, as seen through the eyes of one of its more prominent residents, longtime performance poet, artist, storyteller, singer, Marvin Tate. He is our tour guide with a cast that takes us throughout parks and uh, public places and squares and little hidden corners down these boulevards with the beautiful graystones. North Lawndale has the largest extant collection of graystone buildings in the city to tell the story of two different men at two different times who are artists and who have had to overcome uh, different difficulties, different weights of history. It's not so much a biographical narrative as it is a collection of impressions. It's very, it's a very much a collage and devised piece. The cast is amazing. There are beautiful visuals interspersed throughout. And I think if you're willing to invest the time and just surrender to it, you'll find some very cunning moments here. Uh, and then you get a lovely chicken dinner afterwards at the Wyman Center on South Blasky, which is where the performance begins and ends. This is the third time that Theater Y has done what they call these Camino Project-type shows, uh, where they take you through different areas with performances interspersed. So it's both a neighborhood tour, it's theater, it's poetry, there are moments of dancing, there are moments of clown work, Quite unlike anything else I think you'll find right now, that runs through uh, August 28th. It is free, including the dinner, and uh, you can make reservations at theaterwide.com. So get outside. Lots, lots still to do. I think we got about six, seven more weeks of nice weather, and then, uh, then it gets kind of iffy. Before we wrap up, I d- <laughs> did want to touch on uh, uh, a recent op-ed from Chicago Treatment. Chicago Tribune theater critic Chris Jones that appeared online this past week and is probably in the print edition on Sunday if you get the uh, the Sunday paper still. And it's titled, uh, Chicago Theater Has a Crisis of Leadership and It Has to Stop Eating Its Own. And in it, he uh, talks about some of the, the issues, mainly the issues facing Victory Gardens, which we've discussed here on the show, but he also references House Theater, Timeline Theater, and then the the end of Royal George and Stage 773. And he writes, Chicago theater has to rally, unify, and stop eating its own. I view the crisis, frankly, as existential for a beat I've covered for some 30 years. Were this a more sensational newspaper, the headline might well have been, Is Chicago Theater Over? And so I wanted to get your reactions. We've discussed some of these things here as well, but do either of you share that I guess that that urgency. I don't think Chicago theater is over. I think it is going through a lot of uh, sea changes right now, as are a lot of things. You know, I think if you look at most industries, they'll talk about what it's been like trying to come back from the pandemic. And of course, we are still in the pandemic, which is another issue. Um, there's there are financial issues. There are issues, as I think we've talked about on the program, of artists in particular who had time out, you know, during the shutdown to think, how do I want to work? Do I, are there conditions that I'm willing to put up with to work? And some were saying, no. I do think that some of the, the, the particular theaters are in crisis. I'm still quite concerned about, you know, what will happen with Victory Gardens. We're not getting a lot of information from the board about what their plans are. Um, so in that 
you know, absence of information, I think a lot of rumors do, you know, rush in to fill that vacuum. It would be a tremendous loss, no doubt about it, if Victory Gardens were not to survive this. Yeah, I think some of it's, you know, it's just tied in with power struggles that have been going on and they've been coming more to the fore with Me Too, with Black Lives Matter. So I, I think it's a little premature to write the obituary for Chicago Theater. But Jonathan, what is your thought on that? Well, I think it's premature, but, you know, the, the, the uh, final decision will not be made by Chris Jones or the two of us, the three of us in this conversation, sure. uh, or, by, uh, or by the managements of theaters themselves. It will be made by audiences. Will they come back? Will they mm-hmm. pick up? And I, you know, you and I uh, carry often see shows on opening nights when houses tend to be full. Uh, I sometimes go to, I miss the opening night and go to performances where sometimes there's a full house and sometimes not. Uh, One artistic director and theater manager told me that his reading is that audiences have only returned about 50% of the strength they were before the pandemic and before the shutdown, uh, which would suggest that there's still a rebuilding process to do. And certainly all the bad news that is coming out about leadership, sometimes the lack of transparency, uh, all of this, uh, none of this helps. None of this helps the situation uh, at, all, at all. But uh, it remains to be seen. We are now, the audience is now being passed, you know, not to my generation, which is the generation that created off-loop theater, mm-hmm. and not to our children's generation, which uh, stayed with it, and uh, it is to the grandchildren's generation as they move beyond going to children's theater to their adult entertainment habits. And it remains to be seen whether Chicago can retain its hold on a large uh, and diverse theater audience or whether they're all going to online entertainments and other forms of, 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 of electronics rather than live shows. Uh, yeah, too early to write the obituary, but a very, very, very difficult time, which the pandemic has only made worse, which uh, the Me Too movement, which has been going for six years now, it, it, it started in 2016, and that has had its effect. You know, a great deal of the most senior management uh, of Chicago's theater has been in their positions of power for not just a few years, not just 10 years, but 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, 40 years. And it is this generation that we are now seeing begin to turn over. And, uh, and it's probably about time. Uh, you know, you and I talked last week about the new artistic director at the Goodman Theater, who is um, someone, uh, a generation, or at least a half a generation younger than Bob Falls, who's the retiring artistic director. Um, but still not someone who represents truly a new, young generation, as Falls himself did when he was a surprise choice, uh, when he was not yet 30 years old as artistic director of the Goodman Theater. I think there is also some concern in terms of uh, racial equity. I mean, we talked about House with Lenisa Antoine Shelley, who was brought in to replace, you know, the founding artistic director. She got about two shows in, and then the company decided they didn't have the money to keep going. Ken Matt Martin, who was young, young, rising, you know, and actually, I think in many ways, well-established uh, talent, talent as a oh. as a producer and a director. Um, you know, it, there is a question I think that if boards are going to bring new talent on, then there needs to be a little bit of time for for their vision, you know, for their visions to uh, to take hold. You know, I think that's part of it too, and I think there might be a reactivity that we're seeing, which is not, un, you know, not surprising because again everyone has been in this soup of political upheaval the pandemic uh, so many things climate change i mean name it we're all just sort of feels like we're all on a knife's edge all the time but i think sometimes when you're in that situation make you know to, to change course abruptly you know is is not necessarily always the best thing to do if you've brought somebody on my feeling is unless there is and we don't know again because nobody's really talking a lot in um in some of these cases, uh, then give them a chance to make it work. Give them a chance in this time, especially when audiences are still, you know, just coming back to see what they can see, what they can build up. Um, And I agree with you, Jonathan. I think that, you know, Susan Booth is 
in many ways, um, you know, she's a very good choice. I think it's also perhaps not as old a choice as some people might have been thinking they would see, you know, from the Goodman. And I, you know, but I don't know at what point she was brought on. And, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, I think we just have to take a wait and see. And I think some of that patience, too, for audiences and critics and everyone else is to, you know, be willing to accept new things, be willing to sit with them for a while. You know, if, if something isn't exactly what you've been accustomed to, give it a chance. I'm not saying you have to love everything, but I think that that's, Part of what helps the, the field itself grow is, uh, you know, because again, as you're talking about, Jonathan, all these people that we now think of as grayheads, what they were doing probably didn't, you know, sit well with a lot of older people or more, you know, the mainstream theater audiences of their time. Things things grow, they change. If I'm, op- if I'm optimistic, you know, maybe we will be coming out of the winter of the pandemic and have a nice, fresh bohemia, you know, greeting us by the time that some of this is worked out. Well, you know, thank goodness there aren't any younger theater critics who are better than you and I. <laughs> oh boy. No, no, we sent we sent we sent bears after all of them, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, we sent bears after them. Right. Well, really quickly, uh, Mr. Jones, he you know seems to hint at a, you know, what he views as like the pathway forward, and, and he talks about leadership, and then draws a parallel with the restaurant industry and how it got its collective act together. And then he references the League of Chicago Theaters, which is still searching for a new executive director. Thoughts on that is, is there some type of overarching body that that can help with some of these issues? Well, I do think it would be helpful for us to know. I mean, I don't know where they are in the search process to replace Deb Platt, but certainly, yeah, I think there's more that the um, League of Chicago Theaters could do. I think there's more that the city itself could do to kind of be promoting. We had the year of Chicago Theater. We've had the year of... Chicago dance, which is still ongoing. You know, one thing, and I I don't know if we've talked about this in the show before or not, Jonathan, but I still miss the Storefront Theater, which was the Gallery 37 venue right across the street from the Cultural Center that for many years provided a place for smaller companies, as the name implies, from around the city to come downtown. I thought it was a way for out-of-town people and tourists to be able to see more offbeat work without having to, you know, go too far afield. And, you know, prices were still reasonable, and it gave a very nice, well, a well-appointed venue for some of these companies as well. I think there's ways that, you know, it's a creative field. You can be creative in thinking about how to solve these problems. So I'm, I'm hoping that people will lean into that. It would seem useful, uh, as, certainly as perhaps we go into, it's a little bit late for the current year or season, or perhaps as we go into 23-24, for the League of Chicago Theaters and the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and mm-hmm. Special Events uh, to come up with some ideas for a new uh, major promotion of Chicago theater and really try to reinvigorate that. I realize it doesn't bring the revenue, some people say, Right, it's not uh, it's not Lollapalooza, Lollapalooza. Does. Yeah. <laughs> or that a NASCAR race does, but it does. You know, the yeah. the statistics are now several years out of date, and and of course you have to discount the pandemic years. But you know, Chicago's theater industry was a billion—that's one billion dollar a year economic impact industry—and uh, uh, and sold more tickets than all of Chicago's professional sports teams put together. Right. And People I would, don't yeah, understand yeah. that, don't realize right. that. And we're not Broadway. I think that's actually, I mean, I have great love for a lot of Broadway and Chicago shows. We'll be talking about one next week, as a matter of fact. But, um, you know, I think the great strength of Chicago theater is that when it's working yes. well, there is sustainability. There are companies that are not necessarily all trying to be Steppenwolf, but they're building their own niche, um, and that doesn't mean they're stuck in the mud, that they don't change up leadership, they don't, you know, try new new work, new aesthetic styles. But they're concerned more about, you know, working with what they have rather than go big or go home. Because I think go big or go home can become a really toxic mindset because, you know, there's no, you know, who says you have to be bigger, better, brighter, louder, more all the time? I don't think that, that particularly in theater, that that's always a helpful model. If you, I mean, I was thinking about this again with, with the Theater Y show. Is that for everybody? No. Is it a very? Do they have to keep the audience kind of small because you don't want you know fifty people you know tramping around you know when you can't really get you know helping them get across the street and everything in North Lawndale? The logistics of that are challenging. But for for me, it's just 
a great, beautiful example of the kind of show that can only happen in Chicago, literally, because it's a Chicago neighborhood. Um, that's the kind of vision that I think gives me hope. And not, and it's not something that everyone's going to do. Most people cannot afford to do free theater, although, interestingly, I think a lot of theaters have been going to that radical hospitality model to try to get you know, younger and more diverse audiences in to, to partake of what they're doing. So I think it's just, I don't know, I guess I'm just advocating for everybody to take a deep breath, take a step back, start thinking about, you know, what does an equitable theater you know, ecosystem look like? And let's work together to figure that out. Conflict is okay. A theater is built on conflict. Um, but, but digging in heels and not being willing to make space at the table for other voices that might have very, very excellent ideas is also not a great model. Okay, we'll leave it there. I appreciate both of your thoughts. Gary Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, you're welcome, Gary. We'll talk with you next week about the new musical with a score by Elton John. Ooh. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. Whether it's playing in a band, creating visual arts, or designing clothes, Chicago-based artist Ray Borchers has always pursued creative endeavors. Now, two decades after graduating from the School of the Art Institute, Borcher feels like she's at a point where she can make the work she's always wanted to. Her new solo exhibition, Coasting on None, opened last month at the Dime in Chicago's Wicker Park neighborhood. It's. I feel like I'm at this, like really cool point and I was kind of making a joke that song running on empty but it's not it's got a little bit more grace than running on empty or a little bit more finesse coasting on none is like a cool way like you feel like you're kind of like out of steam and you're just gliding and you're doing it in a cool way Um, (laughs) that's kind of how I look at it I recently caught up with Borchers at the Dime, the gallery space owned and operated by acclaimed artist Tony Fitzpatrick, to talk about her inspirations. I feel like I'm at a point right now where it's, I'm able to find the time and the means to create work in a free and flowing way. And it was almost at the skin of my teeth. I almost didn't pull it off. And it's like I finally found this, way, this really symbiosis way of like being able to balance my life and make work. What do you mean by the skin of your teeth like were you gonna stop creating i mean no i just i felt like after i left the art institute i was always working really manual labor jobs and just working all the time between 40 and 60 hours a week to support even being able to have the luxury to make art and it's i didn't really picture that they don't really paint that picture for you when you're going to art school. It's, it might be like that. I think for most people, it, it can turn out that way. So I think the last 20 years, it was really a lot of um, me just trying to figure out a way to afford making the kind of art I want to make. What do you think shifted? Was it the pandemic or was it before that? Yeah, I think the pandemic. I think it was more like a, the mental effect the pandemic had too. Like it shifted. A lot of people are like, well, I got these unemployment afforded me the time to explore these things. And like, yeah, that's kind of like an obvious thing. But I think also mentally, it's like, I think we were all in this like kind of hamster wheel and grinding and we all had our individual experience with that, but it really, I think a lot of people forced them to take a pause and evaluate and also taking chances on stuff that like, I think when you're in that grind and you're doing something, you get comfortable and used to that, even though it's, it's probably not the best thing for you anyway. And it's easy to not face like things that you want to take a chance on. Bold colors and female forms are consistent elements in the six paintings Borchers created for Coasting on None. Her creative process involved making a series of collages. With this body of work, I definitely made a collage to kind of inspire each work. And that's not something I always do, but I do believe that even when I don't do that, my, it's collage-like. It's, I'm continuously collecting photos and images and looking at images, and I'm kind of obsessed with photography and imagery that's like that's like a forever thing that I'm doing so I'm usually compiling a source of imagery and then I'm arranging them and I think with this body of work since also since I had like a a definitive goal in mind to show 
a body of new work. I constructed these collages. They always change. I do have the original collages, and when you look at them with the, this new work or these new paintings, they you'll definitely see a huge shift and changes. And they don't always work as large-scale paintings, you know. So. So for this one, I see some like signage in the background. I see that magic kiss, and that like makes me think of my childhood because we would go to White Sox games. We would like pass right by. There was this giant. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Okay. Were you taking pictures of signs? Well, yeah, I, I have this thing with, with that I love. There's a this signage in my neighborhood, and it's all hand-painted, but it's hand-painted to look perfect or like vinyl lettering, and I, I love that. The Magic Kiss, I put in that later. I, I think there was like something else that came from that image that I, I actually photographed myself, but it wasn't working, and I was thinking about like something that's like Chicago and iconic, and it's funny too because I didn't even think of this at the time consciously, but Tony, that's his whole thing, is like taking Chicago iconic uh, imagery and symbolism in his work, and that actually just didn't occur to me until now, but it's cool to see like these direct uh, correlations. Just a casual glance around the room, bright and bold colors. Is that your palette or is that specific to this show? I think, I think yeah. I feel like my color schemes are pretty like consistent. I always start, I don't know if you notice a lot of the figures are in this like gold ochre. Mm -hmm. There's like a certain color that I love that's called um, quinacridone gold that okay. Golda makes. And I always like start there. I used to, I, I did oil before this, so I'd use the same color in oil, but like I'm doing acrylic. So all the, all the figures are always, and I, I do a lot of the underpainting in the same color, but then I come back in and I feel like there's certain moments that I want to push forward and pull back and I use color for that or like accentuate certain things or that color gold for me sometimes, to me, it looks kind of like an underpainting, so it looks more traditional or like more classic. And I feel like when I use the color, it kind of takes you into a different dimension or a different world. Like an Instagram filter, but not, I mean, I know that's not what you were doing, but that's <laughs> kind of what it like reminds me, like people put like an Instagram filter to give it like a different feel. Yeah, yeah, that's a really uh, good comparison. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, it's just like using color to create a different, uh, I mean, color always like resonates a feeling, right? So. I like to take it past that, like, classical, there's, you know, there's so much stuff attached to also with just doing straight up, like, figurative work, and I feel like I don't even do it that well anyway, so I want to use color and I want to use, like, these weird imagery to, like, push it to have my own language. As I mentioned earlier, the exhibit is on display at The Dime, a gallery space owned and operated by celebrated Chicago-based artist Tony Fitzpatrick. Borchers has been an admirer of his work for years. A teacher that I was really became really good friends with um, at the Art Institute turned me on to his work when I felt like I was an outsider. I didn't fit in, even though I was taking figure drawing and painting, I was not Cla I wasn't classical. I did. I kept doing my own thing because it's the only thing I knew how to do. And he encouraged me that. And I remember him showing me Tony's book. And to me, Tony felt like kind of like an outlaw. He he was just kind of like in this like world, and he was um, revered. But also, he always just did whatever the he wants to do. Like, and I thought that was the coolest thing. And. I think I relate with a lot of the Chicago images of that, you know, like before his time even, that I feel like this connection, this, uh, there's like an in intuitive thing and there's something pure about it. And also, I, you can just tell by the way that his, he puts his stuff together and then how much work he's producing. He's just got this incredible hardcore worth or work ethic that is very relevant by just looking at what he's producing. So I think that's the stuff that, I don't think our work looks alike, but I think that, yeah, we definitely share similar imagery sometimes, but I was more um, inspired by his work ethic and his fearlessness as an artist. I reconnected with Tony and Tony said, I'll give you a show in a year, but like, I wanna see all new work. And it just kind of gave me this, this cool thing to work towards. And I started, I think I started the two big works in November of that year. I started all the 
the 48 by 36s in New York in January. I had like a month there. And then just ever since January, I've been like full-time just painting. In addition to painting, Borchers is also in a band and designs pieces for the clothing label Boy Names. As for what's next, Borchers just knows she wants to keep creating. I saved my money through the pandemic, so like I'm just able to create right now. And if I can't keep that going, then I will, you know, I'll find another way. But for me, it's like, I think, I don't know, I keep hearing people say that, like, it's really difficult to, for them to motivate themselves to make art, even though that they want to, and they, it's, it's something that they're, they have a desire for, they just can't find the motivation, and I don't, I don't feel that way at all. I, whether I can do this for a living or not, I will do this every day of my life anyway, because I will find a way. I feel like everything's possible. That's Ray Borchers. Her exhibit, Coasting on None, will be on display at the Dime, 1513 Northwestern Avenue, through September 5th. You can find more information about Ray's work at her website, rayborchers.com. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. A new documentary is shedding light on the Chicago roots of a celebrated American author. The film titled Roy's World looks back at Barry Gifford's recollections of growing up in 1950s Chicago. It comes from local filmmaker Rob Christopher. I caught up with Christopher back in 2017 to talk about the Still in Development project. Five years later, it feels like we're living in a different world, but the film is done and getting a special screening later today at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. It's playing in conjunction with a special 4K presentation of Lost Highway, which Gifford co-wrote with director David Lynch. I recently checked in with Christopher to learn more about his approach to making this film. The documentary takes a road less traveled, combining Gifford's words with innovative visual style choices. In addition to being a a fan or admirer of Barry Gifford's work, you have a, a connection to him? Several years ago, I interviewed Barry for Chicagoist, which was a blog that I was writing for at the time. Uh, we spoke a little bit about his time in Chicago, and that got me really interested about his um, history and his childhood. And I also thought that his stories, which he's written over a period of more than 40 years, uh, autobiographical, autobiographical stories about growing up in Chicago, would be a really interesting lens uh, to use to view the Chicago history of that time which is mostly the late 40s to the early 60s. So that was sort of the genesis of the project. And I approached Barry in, let's see, it was 2016, and sort of sketched out my ideas for the film. I said, you know, I don't want to do a Talking Heads movie where it's just a bunch of people uh, doing an infomercial for you. I want it to be really concentrated on the stories themselves and that time and place which you're capturing in the stories. And he was really excited about that, and so we were just off to the races. He's led such an interesting life. There's a number of different directions you could have gone with a documentary about Barry Gifford, but as you just alluded to, you wanted to to focus on his Chicago roots. Did you have a scope in mind once you got started that you wanted to just focus on his childhood that he spent here? Well, using that time period, roughly the late... 40s to the early 60s uh, was really freeing for me because it helped me focus uh, what I wanted the film to be about. And one of the things that interested me the most about that period is, you know, here you have a major American city, the second largest American city at the time, which was renowned for its corruption, renowned for its crime, and the sort of gritty nature of life in the city. And yet, Here's an environment where, you know, kids grew up and they were playing baseball in the alley and uh, their parents weren't necessarily concerned about them growing up in a dangerous place. It was a city of neighborhoods where, uh, in their own way, people in the neighborhood looked out for each other. And I was really fascinated by that paradox. Gifford's biography reads like the resume for a real-life most interesting man in the world. 
He was born and spent parts of his childhood in Chicago, moved all over the country, spent a year at the University of Missouri before dropping out to live in Europe, working as a musician and poet. In 1967, he moved to San Francisco and became one of the original writers for Rolling Stone magazine. While many Gifford fans are familiar with the author's ongoing Sailor and Lula series, which starts with Wild at Heart, famously adapted into a film, Gifford has also written about his life growing up in Chicago in a collection titled The Roy Stories. So more than 40 years ago, he created this character named Roy, who is basically an autobiographical stand-in for Barry himself. Um, He uses Roy as a way to write about his childhood, but not in a sort of like, um, you know, strict memoir sense. Because it's fiction, he's able to sort of riff on his memories of the period and make it into something richer. And I don't think he had any idea when he first started writing these stories that he would keep at it for so long. But basically, now we've got uh, hundreds of stories written over, you know, several decades that really dive deep into that, uh, that atmosphere and, uh, you know, what it was like to be a kid in that time period. The way that the film is structured is you do have Mr. Gifford on tape talking about certain elements, but then his writings, you got a trio of very talented actors to narrate, to to read certain passages from his work. Yeah, I I sure lucked out. Um, When Barry got on board with my idea of the film, he made a couple casual suggestions. He was like, oh, you know, we should get uh, Willem Dafoe and Matt Dillon to read some stories for the film. And of course, I was like, yeah, we should. (laughs) Barry is close friends with both of them. They both know his work really well. So he was able to connect me directly to those actors. And um, we just had a wonderful time diving into a selection of the stories. Um, I, I knew that I wanted a female narrator as well because there's some really important female characters in the Roy stories, uh, including Roy's mother. I've loved Lily Taylor's work, at least since Shortcuts. Um, also, she's from Glencoe originally. Matt and Lily had worked together on this film called Factotum. And so I asked uh, Matt to sort of um, connect me with her, and he did. And, uh, you know, the, all three actors just did such an amazing job. Um, So that's the fictional component of the film. And then I kind of use Barry's voiceover as sort of connective tissue to fill in some background and kind of propel you from one story to the next. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with local filmmaker Rob Christopher about his Barry Gifford documentary, Roy's World. What is his uh, relationship with Chicago a lot of times? Authors will leave their hometowns and they have this kind of conflicted relationship. Does he still remember his time here fondly? Oh yeah, he has, a, he has an immense fondness for it. I mean, I, I don't think he would be writing these stories for all these years if he, if he didn't see it as, as an amazingly rich source of, of inspiration. But as he says at the end of the film, he knew around the time he was graduating from high school that it was time to go see the wide world it was time to sort of find out what person he was actually going to be and to do that he needed to leave chicago so it's not like he hasn't been back since then of course Um, in fact uh, it was a beautiful time last november when he was able to come out for the chicago premiere at the music box theater but um you know, that the, the Chicago that he knew is gone, and he's at peace with that. It's, um, it's, uh, it's just another part and parcel of where he gets his inspiration from, I think. The documentary shines a light on his childhood. His dad has ties to organized crime. As Barry likes to say, his dad was a good man to know. He definitely had ties to organized crime. His father, for many years, um, ran an all-night drugstore at the corner of Chicago and Rush. And ostensibly, you know, it was just a drugstore. They had a soda fountain in there. But in the basement, uh, guys were making deals and betting on the races and uh, sort of functioned as a drop, dropping off, cooling off uh, point for stolen goods. 
Um, so as far as the crime and corruption in the city, his father was really a mover and a shaker. For much of his childhood, Barry was sort of left to his own devices. Part of that revolved around sports, and part of it was watching a lot of movies on you know, late night TV and going to movies and kind of learning how a story is put together. And that was those ingredients sort of created the basis for him becoming a writer. And I remember when we talked five years ago, you made a mention that you know one of the things you wanted was for the viewer to kind of be immersed in this long ago time period of the, the late 40s and 50s in Chicago. Of course, now if you go, like for example, if you went to the corner of Rush in Chicago, there's no drugstore there. And so a lot of those, those pieces of, of Chicago are gone, but what you did is uh, you found these, these old moving images of, of the city you spent some time with the Chicago Film Archive trying to, to find some of these old, old pieces of film. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why the film took as long as it did was uh, we just had to do a ton of archival research just to sort of try to get our heads around what material is out there. The Chicago Film Archives has an amazing collection of films from that era, a lot of which are amateur or home movie films and so from from those we were able to draw the kind of Chicago that you know you're not going to see in a, a newsreel or a, a, a puff piece travelogue these are people you know ordinary people living in, during that time what kinds of things did they take pictures of we also got a lot of amazing material from the Richard J. Daly archives which is at UIC there was stuff from the Library of Congress there was stuff from the Newberry Library a whole melange of sources, which we tried to fashion into a sort of mosaic so that as a viewer, you know, when you're watching the film, you do kind of hopefully feel like you're in that time and place for the hour and 15 minutes that the film is going on. It is unlike most documentaries uh, I've ever seen. So was there something that inspired you or influenced the visual style? Well, it was a really weird, unholy mashup in some ways between the work of Terence Davies, who's a British filmmaker uh, who made this beautiful kind of personal essay film about his childhood in the 1950s in Liverpool called Of Time in the City. And then probably the second big influence was Reggio's film Nakoikatsi, which is entirely made up of manipulated stock imagery. Of course, Nakoikatsi is doing something a lot different than my film, but the inspiration it gave me is, you know, you can take this archival stuff that most filmmakers just use as like B-roll footage or cutaway footage, but if you treat it the right way and you make it the centerpiece of your film, you can find lots of beautiful, haunting um, images um, that are really surprising, things that you wouldn't necessarily consciously be able to create on your own. But if you uh, juxtapose them in just the right way, they can create something really beautiful and poetic. So I think between those two films, um, those were definitely uh, my major inspirations. Looking back on, on the whole process, was making this what you thought it would be? <laughs> well, uh, you know, one, the most exciting part of making a film for me is the very beginning, when you basically don't know what the hell you're doing. It's at that moment when, when anything can happen, and you just have to sort of keep your wits about you and trust your instincts and just go wh wherever the film takes you. You have to sort of listen to the project itself, you know, what does the project want to be? And you just have to follow that. So that's what I did. That was Rob Christopher. He's the director of the new documentary, Roy's World. And it's getting a special screening this evening at the Music Box Theater at 7 p.m. Go to musicboxtheater.com for more details. Rob will be participating in a post-screening Q&A. And you can find more information about the documentary at roysworldfilm.com. Also, a quick note for our jazz listeners out there, local vibraphonist Jason Adeshevitz did the score for the film, and uh, there are plans to release it as an album later this year. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. 
But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. I hope you were able to enjoy some of this nice weather we're having. Thanks for listening. <laughs>